Morning, Keystone. Happy Easter. Excited to get to celebrate and worship with you all this morning on what we believe is the most hope-filled event in the history of the world. Jesus coming back from the dead. Not to die again, but coming back from the dead to live forever. Uh, And I'm excited, too, that we've got kids in here joining us this morning. So I brought along my little Easter bag. Uh, And in here, I have one of my favorite Easter candies. Uh, These are Reese's peanut butter eggs. And so I'm going to give these out to the kid under 12 who can answer this question for me. You can get help from the people around you if you want. Uh, I'm just going to go. You can't raise your hand yet. Uh, I'm just going to go off who raises their hand first after I ask the question. So... And I might, there's a lot of people in here, so I might not see if you raise your hand first. You might want to jump up too. Uh, In that story, there are three people mentioned beside Jesus that Brandon just read. There is Mary Magdalene, there is Peter, and then there's another disciple who's not named, but who's described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is that disciple? Hold on, I saw, I'm going to go in the back, pink shirt. I saw you first. John is correct. Uh, I threw it in first service. Uh, Brandon, I'm just going to give it to you to take it back this time. I don't trust my throwing. That's great. Uh, I, I love a good comeback story. And I would guess many of you in here do too. It's part of why I enjoy sports and getting to watch sports. Because I think some of the best comeback stories happen in sports. And in 2004, one of what many people consider the greatest comebacks in history happened. And maybe some of you are familiar with it. In 2004, the Boston Red Sox were losing in game four of a playoff series. And they were already down three games to zero to their rivals, the New York Yankees. It seemed like everything was going against them. It seemed like this was just going to be one more defeat on a long list of defeats, one more sorrow for a long list of sorrows of Red Sox fans. Because no one in history had ever come back from a 3-0 deficit in a playoff series. It it seemed like the 86-year-old drought where the Red Sox had not won a World Series championship in 86 years, what some people referred to as the curse of the Lambino was just going to continue on. And then something shifted. They came back in that game, and they won on a walk-off home run in the 12th inning. And then they won seven straight games to ultimately win the World Series and take it home. The the comeback was completed, the curse was lifted, and years of sorrow were undone. And if you're a Red Sox fan, you probably look back at that and you tell that story over and over again. And if you're not a Red Sox fan, you probably shrug your shoulders and you think, big deal, big deal. We gather on Easter morning to celebrate what we would say is the greatest comeback story ever. Jesus dying and then coming back to live forever. And part of why we gather is to remind ourselves 
over and over again of just how big of a deal it is and just how much it can change our lives. And so this morning, as we look at Jesus' first words after he's risen from the dead, like Brandon said, we've been looking at his last words as he dies on the cross. And I hope that part of what you've seen is that Jesus dies so that we can be forgiven and so that we can have a relationship with God. But this morning we say, thank goodness he didn't stay dead. Thank goodness he didn't stay dead. But he got up, took his first breath after death, and walked out of the tomb and started the great reversal we might call in history, a great reversal that will one day be complete when he returns or when we die. And his first words to Mary, which are actually a question, he says, woman, why are you weeping? Shows us that part of this great reversal that he's brought about because of his resurrection, is that all of our sorrow will turn to joy. That because of the resurrection, all of our sorrow will turn to joy. But let me pray for us this morning before we jump into this passage more that Brandon read for us. Father, we gather on an Easter morning coming in with lots of different things probably on our minds, happening in our lives. Probably some of us here this morning are excited. Things are going well. We're happy. And others maybe are in here and we're confused or feel like life is not working out and maybe sorrows seem to be adding up. And God, for all of us, we come this morning and we want to fix our eyes on Christ And we want to see how his resurrection changes how we can view our lives, especially our sorrows and joy in this life. And so we ask that you would speak to us through your spirit this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mary comes to the tomb that first Easter morning expecting to find what? A dead body. Expecting to mourn over Jesus' death. Because you don't go to a graveyard looking for the living. Right? She comes mourning over all that she thinks she has lost because of Jesus' death. She is weighed down by an incredible weight of sorrow. I mean, this man changed her life forever. We can read in Luke chapter 8 that Jesus casts seven demons out of Mary Magdalene at one point. She had a messed up past, and Jesus forever changed the trajectory of her life. She comes knowing that this man loved her like no one else had ever loved her. That he said things and did things that captivated her, challenged her, and filled her with hope. And now he's gone. And now he's gone. That's the weight Mary comes under as she walks to the tomb that first morning. And when she finds that there's an empty tomb, what's her first response? What's her only logical conclusion? Not quite yet. (laughs) But you know the end of the story. That's good. (laughs) Her only conclusion in that initial moment is his body's gone. Someone must have taken it. 
grave robbers took it. Someone hid it away. Maybe the powerful rulers have stolen it and added insult to injury. Because after all, in Mary's mind, dead men don't walk. Mary can't even begin to imagine that Jesus has risen from the dead. Because after all, that seems impossible to her as it would to everyone living at that time. And Jesus' resurrection, first of all, declares to Mary and to all of us when he says, woman, why are you weeping? That he can do the impossible. We have a God who speaks light into darkness. That we have a God who brings life from death. That we have a God who can turn sorrow into joy because he can do what we believe is impossible at times. In 1954, a guy by the name of Roger Bannister broke through a barrier that people thought was impossible to break. For the first time in history, he ran, or someone ran, a sub-four-minute mile. That was a boundary people had said, no one will break this. This is the limit of human endurance. And Roger broke through when he ran a three-minute and 59-second mile signaling to the world it is possible to run a sub-four-minute mile. And the world freaked out. And Jesus would say to us, you think it's a big deal to run a sub-four-minute mile? I came back from death. I broke the barrier that everyone thought was impossible to break between life and death. I came back and I will never die again, signaling that all things are possible for those who trust in him. I mean, I think about Roger Bannister breaking a sub-four-minute mile. In some ways, that means nothing to me because despite that he could do it, there is no way that I could ever break a sub-four-minute mile, and probably none of you in here could. We could train and train and train and train, and yet never would we be able to reach that. But Jesus' resurrection says he's done the impossible, and he will do it in us too. That because he conquered death, we actually will conquer death. That because he overcame sorrow and turned it into joy, he will do that in our lives as well. That with him, all things are now possible. All things are possible. I mean, we... I don't know how you are, but I tend to naturally put limits on, God's at, on God at times. Thinking in my mind, there are certain things that, that he can't quite do. And the resurrection explodes those limits and says all things are possible for our God. All things are possible. He can forgive all sins. He can redeem any past And he can turn any sorrow into joy because he has power over life and death. All things are possible for him. But the resurrection doesn't just stop with saying, okay, all things are possible for Jesus now. It also shows us that Jesus is with us in every situation we face. A great comfort to those who would say they're Christians is this truth. Jesus is with me. With me in everything I face. Without the resurrection, that is only wishful thinking. If Jesus is still in the dirt in a tomb somewhere, it's only wishful thinking to believe that he's with us. But if he rose from the dead, then he is with us in any situation we face. And the story with Mary shows us he's especially with us 
in the sorrows that we face in this life. I, I love considering this scene for a moment as we step back and think about it a little bit. Remember, that this is what we believe is the first appearance of Jesus after he was raised from the dead. The first words of Jesus after he was raised from the dead. So let's think. He just won the greatest victory in all of history. Up to this point, what is death's record? Undefeated. Death has built the greatest dynasty the world's ever known. And Jesus simply knocks it over, stumps on death, steps over it, flexes his muscles on it, walks out of the tomb. And where's the first place he shows up to announce this victory and celebrate it? With a woman who is weeping, who's in sorrow, who's breaking down, who thinks everything good I have is gone. And Jesus shows up to meet her in that moment. This is a beautiful picture, in part because it seems so backward to us. We would think naturally such a great king who won such a great victory, surely he would want to be around those who aren't sad, who have their lives put together, to celebrate at least with John, who was the first one to believe in this story, but he shows us, he draws near to this woman who's weeping, who's falling apart, who believes all is lost to comfort her in the moments after he's won the greatest victory possible. I mean, we might look around at Easter and we might be tempted to think because we all kind of dress in our best clothes that Jesus is for people who have their lives put together, who have it figured out, who aren't weighed down under difficulty, sorrow, question, confusions. But that's simply not true at all. Jesus appearing to Mary in the garden says he is ultimately for those who are at times confused, who don't have their lives all put together, who are sorrowful and who desperately are longing for him to work in their lives. People who bring their stuff to Jesus and say, I don't have it figured out. I don't have it put together. But will you put me back together again? We naturally tend to think Jesus is nearest to us when everything's going well. And when we're kind of strongest in our faith. But the story points to the opposite truth. It says Jesus is nearest to those often who are weeping, confused, weighed down by life's burdens. Like Psalm 34, 18 would say, which I think Jesus fulfills in this passage perfectly. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. See, it's in the deepest valleys that we often find Jesus to be the nearest or that he really is in some ways the nearest. Yes, he's always with us. Yes, he's always near to us. But in some ways, his comfort, his goodness, his power, his mercy draws to the surface most clearly when we are in sorrow or difficulty. I think of a picture of this. Uh, My son currently has a favorite hobby. It's been his favorite hobby for about the past half a year. His favorite hobby is this. He likes to dig for worms. 
I don't know why. I guess there's just something about like as a three-year-old boy, you love digging down the dirt, pulling up the biggest night crawler you can find, and then parading it around saying, look what I found. He's learned something as he's dug for worms. He's learned that the best time to dig for worms is right after it rains. See, he knows the worms are always in the dirt, but the time when I can see them most clearly, find them most clearly, is right after the ground has been watered by all that rain. And in some sense, this story, Jesus showing up, comforting Mary, right after his resurrection, right after his victory, tells us, yes, Jesus is always with us, but in some sense, his power, his mercy, his grace, his love, his comfort draws most clearly to the surface as we walk through sorrow and difficulty in this life. But Jesus' resurrection also does more than just saying he's with us in our sorrow. Jesus' resurrection guarantees that sorrow has an expiration date. He, he both confirms and secures what we read in Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Weeping may tarry for a long, long, long night, but joy comes in the morning. Like when Jesus steps out of the tomb, is risen back from the dead, he slaps an expiration date on all sorrow in this life. He puts it on the clock and he says, it will not last forever. It has an end date. For Mary and the disciples, their deep sorrow over thinking, Jesus is gone, we've lost him, lasts three days. It has an end date. And for us, though it may be longer than three days, all of our sorrow has a limit. Because of the resurrection, there is a limit to all our sorrow. It's true of each individual sorrow we face, but also as sorrow as a whole, that one day it will come to the end. There is a limit on it. There is an expiration date on sorrow in this world. It's why... If your faith is in Christ, you can look out to your future and you can know there's a day coming, there's a day coming where Jesus will also say to you, why are you weeping? And you'll look up and you'll see his face and he'll say your name, Kyle, and then he'll wipe away every single tear. That's why Revelation 21.4 a book that's also written by John, says about the coming end, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away through Christ. That is your future. Okay, so that's coming. How does that help us in the present? as we're weighed down by difficulties and sorrows. Because to know that something won't last forever can help us to endure in the present. 
To know that something won't go on forever can help us to keep going, endure through whatever may be difficult in the present. You've probably, most of you in here, have seen a commercial for a Peloton exercise bike or a bike similar to it. And it's got a video screen on the front and you've got a trainer talking to the person who's biking through the video screen. And what do you often hear that trainer saying? They're saying something like, five more minutes, keep going. Three more minutes, keep going. One more minute, you're almost there, keep going. They know a truth. They know that if someone gets on an exercise bike and thinks this is going to last forever, they'll give up really early on. Like if I jump on a Peloton bike and I think I've got to keep going and going and going and going, I'm going to give up really fast. But if I know there's a limit, there's a limit to this pain, there's a limit to this difficulty, there's a limit to this suffering, then all of a sudden you're able to endure beyond what you thought was possible. And so when Jesus rises from the dead, slaps an expiration date on sorrow and suffering in this world, he looks at us in the midst of our sorrow and says, five more minutes, keep going. Four more minutes, keep going. Three more minutes, keep going. Two more minutes, keep going. One more minute, keep going. This will not last forever. Keep your eyes fixed on me. You can endure. You can press on. And there's a flip side to this truth as well. That because of the resurrection, there is a limit to our sorrow. Because of the resurrection, there is no limit to our joy. If your faith is in Christ, because of the resurrection, there is no limit to the joy that you will one day experience. I mean, if, if Jesus died and stayed dead, then Mary's joy has a limit. Like, it was nice while she knew Jesus. It was great while he did miracles, but now he's dead and gone. So back to real life that's full of sorrow and disappointment. But do you know what Jesus' resurrection tells us? Real life, like the life that you were meant for, that God created you for, the life that through Christ you will one day have, is a life of forever joy with him. We, we throw around a saying in this life, all good things come to an end. All good things come to an end, right? Steak dinner comes to an end. That vacation comes to an end. All good things in this life come to an end. But Jesus' resurrection would tell us, all truly good things go on forever. Never end. Yeah, they may end at times in this life, but all truly good things will go on forever with him. And that, that truth, or the, both these truths, I think give us the ability to face sorrow and joy well in this life. Because we can look at Jesus in our sorrows and, and we can say to him, Jesus, because you were raised from the dead, I know that this won't go on forever. So help me to keep going. Help me to keep going. Help me to endure through it. And we can say in our joys, when everything is great, Jesus, because you were raised from the dead, this, whatever is making life so great right now, is but a Costco sample 
to what you've promised one day. I mean, we can say when life gets difficult, it won't always be this way. And we can say when life gets good, it will be even better than this someday. That's what Jesus says when he tells Mary, why are you weeping? I've come back from the dead. Your sorrow will not last forever, but your joy in me will last forever. But, but more than just Jesus' resurrection saying that sorrows end and joy goes on forever, his resurrection actually tells us Jesus will turn all of our sorrow, every last bit, into joy. The resurrection promises that all sorrow leads to joy. See, Jesus predicted this moment with Mary in the garden and the moment when he would see the other disciples. He predicted it before he died. On the night of his, or before he was crucified, he told his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. I, I love picturing the scene with Jesus and Mary. And I love thinking, what did Jesus' face look like as Mary was weeping, as she thinks he's the gardener, and then he says, Mary. I've got to think he's got this big smile on his face. He says, Mary, it's me, I'm back. And in that instant, Mary goes from uncontrollable grief to utter shock to unimaginable joy in an instant. That's the power of the resurrection. Death leads to unimaginable life, like we talked about last week. Sorrow, one day, will lead to unimaginable joy in Christ. I mean, this is why Paul can point out in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction, Paul looks at all the sorrows and difficulties that we face in this life, and he says, this light momentary affliction. Paul, how could you say that? Because this light momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of glory that's beyond comparison. That in Jesus' hands, all our sorrows are preparing for us a weight of glory and joy in the future. We have uh, around my house a toy right now. We've had this for a little while, and maybe you recognize it and you have it around your house. These are Duplos. Duplos uh, are essentially just big Legos. And maybe if you're a kid, you've played with these before. As a 32-year-old, when I pick up Duplos, I try to build the biggest tower I possibly can with them. I try to build a bigger tower than I had last time. And so I start to put them together and see how high I can get the tower. That they're simply building blocks in my hands to build as big of a tower as I can. When Jesus says, your sorrow will turn into joy, he says all our sorrows, no matter how difficult they may be, no matter how much they weigh, may weigh us down, in Jesus' hands, they are building blocks that he is using to prepare for you unimaginable joy in the future. 
that sorrow ends up being a servant to our joy because Jesus conquered death and conquered sorrow forever. That's why David Mathis can say a quote like this. Not only will he, Jesus, remedy what's wrong in your life and bring glorious order to the mess and vanquish your foe, but he will make your pain, your grief, your loss, your burden through the deep magic of the resurrection to be a real ingredient in your everlasting joy. When he wipes away every tear, our faces glisten more brilliantly than if we never would have cried. And so all our sorrow can be colored with hope because every tear we shed and every ounce of heartache we experience is like a seed that goes down into the ground and under Jesus' care will sprout up into an oak tree of joy one day. All our sorrow turns to joy under Jesus' care. How do we know that's true? How do we know that's true? Because it doesn't feel like that in the midst of this life sometimes. Yes, sometimes we might see in this life that our sorrow really does turn to joy, but often we're left waiting for the future. So how do we know that's true? Well, in part because Jesus promises it, as we've seen, in part because this scene gives us an example of it, Mary's weeping in the beginning, and she's joyful at the end, running out to tell everyone about Christ, but also in part because this scene actually gives us a window into a deeper reality. This scene, in some ways, with Mary and Jesus in a garden, it's a flashback. It's a flashback to an earlier scene in the Bible. Because there's another scene in the Bible where there is a man and a woman in the garden. A scene that takes place in Genesis 3. And in that scene, we see the saddest day in history where this man and woman rebel against a good God and say, we don't want you and we want our own way. And as a result, they're separated from God. And as a result, God puts a curse on this world. And everything sad and difficult flows from that scene. And then we flash forward and we find another man and woman in the garden. Right after Jesus rises from the dead. And what's Jesus saying? The separation between God and man is gone through me. That's why he tells Mary, I'm going to my father and your father. I'm going to my God and your God. Mary, the separation is over. And it's why he can also tell her the curse is undone. So when he tells Mary, Mary, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? He's not just saying your weeping is over. He's also saying the curse is lifted. And one day all weeping will disappear in me and through me. And think about this. If Jesus can undo what was the saddest day in history, Genesis 3, then surely one day he can also undo every sad day in our stories. If he can undo what was the saddest day in history, surely he can undo and use what may be the sad days in our stories. And the other thing about this scene is that we see two angels sitting there. And in the garden, two angels block the way back into God's presence and into paradise. 
and now two angels sit on Jesus' empty tomb and point the way back in and say, it's him. It's him, Jesus. He's the way back in with God. He's the way back into paradise. Trust him. Just as Boston Red Sox fans can look back to 2004 and say, that's the moment the curse was lifted. As Christians, we can look back to Easter 2,000 years ago and say, that's the moment the curse was lifted. Yes, we still experience its effects. We still experience sorrow and difficulty in this life. But the curse has been lifted. The great reversal has begun. And Jesus is going to complete it one day. One day. Sometimes I I think that kids' books can capture the truth better than anything else. And and one of my favorite books for Eastern, and maybe you have this in your home, is The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross. And I wish I could read the whole thing, but we, we don't have time for it. But there's a scene near the end that captures my imagination. It's a scene of someone being welcomed by Jesus into this world, this new heavens, new earth. It's a scene that if you are a Christian, captures your destiny, and if you're not, can become your destiny by turning to Christ. And it's a scene that I think gives us an image to what might have happened that first day between Mary and Jesus. We don't see the person's face who's hugging Jesus, but we see Jesus' face, and he's robed in glory. He's a king, and he's got this huge smile on his face. And I have to imagine moments before this, he says this person's name, wipes away all their tears, and gives them this huge hug. And and the author of this book, in the midst of this scene, says, Jesus has sent everyone an invitation to come and live with him there. God says it is wonderful to live with him. Because of your sin, you can't come in. But I died on the cross, Jesus says, to take your sin So all my friends can now come in. We can live with God forever and there will be nothing bad and no one sad. When Jesus rises from the dead and says to Mary, woman, why are you weeping? He says, I've undone the curse and I'm gonna undo everything bad and everything sad. And one day through faith in me, that will be your destiny. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you for the very fact that we don't have to fear death because you conquered it and because it's under your grip. And we also know that that means all the sorrow we might face in this life is also under your grip. And I pray that the resurrection would fill us with hope. That you really are, for those who love you, turning all things to good. That you really are turning sorrow to joy. And I pray that as we look forward to our final destiny one day, we would live full of hope throughout this life in all that we face. We pray this in Jesus' name.